Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is a DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. Our guest today is Julie Fast, author of Take Charge of Bipolar Disorder and Loving Someone with Bipolar Disorder. Julie is a critically acclaimed four-time author, national speaker, and sought-after expert in the field of bipolar disorder and depression. She is regarded as a mental health pioneer for her groundbreaking, comprehensive approach to treating bipolar disorder and depression using both mainstream and proven alternative therapies. Julie will be interviewed today by Gail Cutler of Rebecca's Dream. Rebecca's Dream is an organization founded by Gail and Norman Cutler in memory of their daughter, Rebecca Cutler. Rebecca's Dream is a sponsor of DBSA's Family and Recovery Pre-Conference Institute featuring Julie Fast, which will be presented at the DBSA National Conference in Norfolk, Virginia. Okay, so now we're recording. You can start any time and I won't interrupt you. All right. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. It's wonderful to speak to you, and I just want to let you know that in going through your books and your materials, it is very clear to me that you and I could have a conversation that would be ongoing for six months to at least a year. So uh, I try to uh, pull out a few questions. It was very hard to do, and I hope that you'll bear with me and feel free to expand as much as you would like. Okay. And this is my first question to you, which just popped right out at me. You had written, this is a direct quote, Give me your life. I want, I so wanted to be well. And that jumped out at me, Julie, because my own daughter, Rebecca, would say so often, I want one day to feel normal. Just one day. My question to you, Julie, uh, in, in your statement, Give Me Your Life, was you said you envied people without bipolar disease. Do you feel envious today after all of your accomplishments, all that you have given to the rest of the world? Are you still feeling envious today? Oh, that's a great question. I would say in the last year it's definitely gotten better, but no, I still am. And you know what I'm envious of? I'm envious of the everyday stuff. I'm envious of someone being able to wake up and not hear a voice that said there's no point in getting out of bed. And I'm, I'm envious when I see couples who are just walking down the street, shopping, having fun. And, and you envy more when you're sick. When you're well, you actually don't think about it very much because you just are like those people walking down the street getting on with their lives. And I think the envy is more of me wanting to wake them up and say, listen, you know, go for your dreams. Don't stay in a job you don't like. Don't stay in a relationship you don't like because you have a choice. Whereas those of us with bipolar often don't have a choice on our moods and we just want to be normal. So the envy is is definitely better, but I guess what I would say is I, I wish I could show other people to respect what they have more because I know that on my normal days I respect it so much and I'm so thankful that I'm actually able to live like a normal person. The envy's gotten better. <laughs> for uh, sure. Well, I envy a lot when I'm depressed. Yes. That's part of depression. Yes, yes. Part of depression. Yes, and I know that was uh, Rebecca's uh, 
desire just give me one day one day yeah it's not like we're asking for superpowers we just right. give me one day where I actually can get up and not hear voices all day mm-hmm. and it's happening I'm having a lot more days like that now. Oh, that's, that's wonderful Julie and let there be many many more to come many more days it, it brought me that that question led me to to yet another. Um, Rebecca would often talk about catching glimpses of what she could have been, what she wanted to be. She too is a writer. She uh, was a, a magnificent writer, and she saw where she wanted to go and and what she wanted to do. And she would literally pound her fists into the pillow, screaming, "It's not fair! It's not fair! It's not!" fair. There's so much I want to do, so much I could be. I want to ask you, Julie, what are the elements in your life today that give you satisfaction and hope for tomorrow? Great question as well. You know, last year I found the answer to that question. I've been really ill since 1995, and then from 2002 till around 2000, beginning of 2007, I was pretty much sick like 80, 90% of the time. And I used to say, what's the point? Where am I going? You know, these books that I, I care, people care so much about these books, you know, why am I not happier? And one day I was just ride, ride, driving down the street and I found the answer, and it's relationships. Mm-hmm. It's good relationships with family and friends and hopefully a partner, which I, I hope for, you know, in my life. But that's the only thing that matters. And I focused in on my nephew, who's six, year, six years old, and I remember saying, if you can remember anything when you're sick, Julie, remember how much your friends and family care about you and take that as the answer to the question, what's the point of life? Because that's the question you get. What's the point of life? Why am I here? And the answer is the people I have worked so hard on with to have good relationships, they are the answer to that question. But when you're sick, you push people away. You have trouble with friendship. You might not have a good relationship with certain people. So it's up to the person with the illness to learn how to build those relationships. And it takes time. But that is, that's that's my answer. And it's people. It's not jobs or money or work you know, or creativity, which is what my brain tells me I don't have. Mm-hmm. And it's people. So that's how that took me until I was, what, 43 years old to figure that out. Mm-hmm. Oh, and that leads me right into the next question that I have. Uh, again, I'll, I'll speak about Rebecca. I, I saw that she worked her her health plan to, to feel healthy when she was well. She was able to do that when she was well and not surrounded by, as she called them, her demons. But she just couldn't work her program and work her plan when she was spiraling down. You, you wrote in your materials to have a vigilant treatment plan and medication and needing both. Julie, my question to you is how does one do that? when one is truly unable to get out of bed. Well, that's the whole point of my system is that you cannot expect yourself to be able to do that when you're in bed or when you feel like being in bed. That's why you have a plan that involves everybody in your life. And I know you've told me, you guys, you know, you were such a tight family and you wanted to help, but lots of times families don't know how to help when a person is starting to spiral down. By the time I was in bed, that's, that's, it's, it's late, it's not too late, but it's late to start helping someone. There are always signs before someone ends up in bed, before someone 
ends up in the hospital. And you have that system in place so that when the first sign starts, for example, my family, when they see the first sign of mania, literally, it's Julie, we think you're manic, you know, blah, blah, and I'll be like, I'm not manic, come on. <clears throat> you know, come on, I'm not manic. But I've set up that system, and so by the time Rebecca was in bed, it was too hard for her in many ways. And also one thing to remember about Rebecca is she had what's known as rapid cycling, so she'd go up and down and she'd have hope. And then it knocks you down again and you're in bed and you don't want to be there and it's talking to you. So the secret for families who are listening to this is have a plan in place that they can use when someone gets as sick as Rebecca and I do. Because they're the hope when she got sick and when I got sick. And that's, that's what I say to people. It's not the individual who can do it when they're that ill. Mm-hmm. It's the group. It's the treatment team. Absolutely. And that's the answer I have for that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to deviate a bit from my own sure. plan in front of me. Uh, your words are so powerful, and, and the concept is so important and so powerful. However, what happens, Julie, when family and friends don't believe that you're really that sick? What happens when people look at you and say, what's the matter with you? You've got everything. You, you've got beauty. You have brains. You have, you have it all. What's the matter with you? Just get yourself out of bed, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and get on with it it for most of my life before I was diagnosed, even heard it after. I'll never forget my, um, a very close friend of mine when I got diagnosed said, Julie, I'm so glad you've dealt with your problems. And I will never forget that because that's, you know, I always bring up, you know, cancer or diabetes. Here's what I do now. No one dares say that to me anymore because I'm like, you have to understand that is literally like someone coming up to someone with severe diabetes and saying, why don't you just, you know, regulate that darn insulin? I can. How dare they, you know, say something like that to a person with diabetes? Why don't you just get rid of that brain cancer? And so what I've done over the many, many years is I educate people. So if someone says to me, God, Julie, I don't see why you have such a hard time working, I will say, you know what, I understand that probably from the outside it's hard to understand, but everybody with bipolar disorder, because they get overstimulated, because they have desires that they can't meet, because they have mood swings that tell them they can or can't do something, work is hard for them, and I'm just an example of that. Um, I can explain a little bit more because I know it's confusing, and right there I never have that. They just don't ask me that question anymore. My mom said something interesting. She said when people come up to her and go, you know, you know, Julie has bipolar, but that's not, you know, why doesn't she just do this and this and this? My mom will say, yeah, I understand. Can I tell you a little bit more about the illness and it makes it easier to understand Julie? That's completely changed our lives. So we do what I always say. We focus on the illness, not the mood that the person's in who says ignorant things, and not the mood we feel when they're, like, knocking me or knocking my brother or knocking in job. We just go straight into treatment illness mode. Let me tell you more about bipolar and the fact that 99% of us, you know, get into moods where we can't get out of bed. But we can teach ourselves, here's how you can help me, and that's how I deal with it. And by the way, people who don't, are not able to see that, they're not in my life, whether they be family member or friend, but you know what? I have not found anybody who's not in my life for that reason. They all understand when I present it as an illness. Everyone. 
You have become true educators, true educators. And yes, there will be people who will fall away because they don't understand. They just don't get it. They don't, and often it's because they're emotionally, there's something emotionally going on in them. And I know this sounds sort of, you know, Freudian, but it's hard for them to see how much we hurt. Yes. It's hard for them to see that they can't help us. Mm-hmm. It takes a huge leap of faith to be a friend with someone with bipolar or to be a family member or partner because they're scared. We get sick. Right. Or maybe they don't want to deal with it. They don't want a friend with that much trouble, and I respectfully accept that, and I can feel when they move away and I let them go. Yes. That takes tremendous courage, too, because the isolation is so profound. The isolation often comes from your mind. And if you can remind yourself when you're well enough that that isolation feeling is 100% a part of bipolar, when it starts, at the beginning, you just go, this is depression, this is depression, this is depression, I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to listen. And often you can you can move out of that more quickly or ask for the help you need if you get that in your brain that it's an illness and it's not you. It's hard, though, because it'll spiral so quickly you miss it. Mm-hmm. But I've taught myself to catch it most of the time now. You've worked so hard, so diligently. I would not, you know, look what, you know, you've been through, look what my family and friends have been through. It's it's a killer illness. Yes, it is. You know, it is, but it can be managed, but it's, it's life-threatening. Yes, it is. It brings me to another question. In uh, looking through your book, Loving Someone with Bipolar Disorder, which, by the way, bless you for writing it. Oh, thank uh, you. It's all it of your... It came out of a lot of pain, I can tell you that. Oh, my gosh. Can, can, well, I'm going to hold off on my question, then. Can you talk a bit about how this book developed? Well, unbelievably, in 1994, which seems like the dark ages now, I was married to a fabulous man named Ivan, who is French, in Japan, and he'd always had some depression when he was younger, and he was, we met when he was 19, he was very young. We moved to the United States, and I had no idea, of course, what a trigger was. I didn't even know what bipolar was. I didn't know I had it, and he became extremely ill on his birthday, to the point that by the night of his birthday, I was on the phone with the emergency room saying something's very, very wrong with my partner. Um, he was saying weird things and now I look back it had been about a week that it had been happening and then when he looked back he had a lot of behavior in Japan that we did not you know connect with bipolar he beat somebody up he had an affair just horrible stuff that he was devastated about that I didn't know about actually Um, and he went extremely manic and psychotic and went into the hospital that night on his birthday actually that's not true it was later that night so it was next actually the next day and he stayed in a manic psychotic episode for three months Mm. it was long story getting an in and out out of the hospital having to go to court you know 90 days holds and he was in restraints for two of those months. He didn't recognize me. He did not, he could not take care of himself. He couldn't really do anything. He was in a hospital gown and strapped down. For the last month, he was able to walk around, but he was still gone. And then one day, I'll never forget, I got on the phone, because he used to say things like, have you been shot? Have you been shot? Are you okay? And I'd say, no, I've been shot. And one day, I picked up the phone and he went, Julie, and he was back. But then we went into the six months of severe suicidal downswings. Finally, it became too much for me, and I sent him to his mom in France where he went to the hospital in France, and then I started to go down. I knew I had depression, didn't know I had bipolar, and believe it or not, I was diagnosed a year later with bipolar. 
He has bipolar 1, I have bipolar 2, but I can say he is doing very well. He didn't have another manic episode or even a sign of one for 12 years. He lives in France with his partner. Um, he certainly has depression. He has to be very careful about work. Um, he cannot have too much stress at work. But my book was written because there was nobody there to help me when he got that sick. Mm-hmm. And that's where that book came from. It's for people like myself who love someone and they're gone. You know, and I'm left holding everything and making sure he takes his medication, et cetera. So that's where that book came from. And it was positive at the end because we're both doing quite well. And you stay in touch. I mean, he, you know, when you break up with somebody, it takes a long time, especially in terms of caregiving. And believe it or not, we broke up because I got better. Oh. We never, ever, it never hurt our relationships that we both had bipolar disorder. It made us more loving and kind. I got better and I wanted something, I wanted a life of someone who was well and he did not want the same life. Mm. But we're very, very good friends. It sounds like the days of wine and roses. It was very true. Uh, well, the, the perfect segue for this, my question uh, is uh, when you write Treat Bipolar First oh, yeah. in, uh, the, in your book, Loving Someone with Bipolar Disorder, Treat Bipolar First, and you're very emphatic about that. Would you be able to expand on that for our listeners? It's actually in every single one of my books, and here's the reason. Anybody who's listening to this who has bipolar knows if we don't treat bipolar first, it affects every single part of our life, like down to the millimeter. If I'm not aware of what bipolar disorder does, I can't have relationships, I can't travel, I can't work, I can't do anything. Illness distorts what I think. It leads me, especially mania, to behavior that's embarrassing or that could wreck my life. It makes it so that something as simple as a concert or going to a friend's wedding or something can make me go into paranoia. If I'm not aware of what bipolar does to me, then when I get in a situation in the bipolar over, I listen to the bipolar instead of rationally judging the situation. If I don't take my meds, I'll be so sick that I can't function. If I don't have people in my life who respect me and understand me, I will be sick all the time. My friends and family know it comes first, bipolar. And then I can have a regular life. That means management pretty much 24 hours a day, even though, and that includes when I wake up in a downswing or when I don't want to sleep. And that has been going on for me since 1999. So I don't mess around. No. First. Your your inner core your your inner core is is uh, rock solid. Thank you, Gail. But you know what? That took many years because this illness tells you things and it makes you do things that are so awful that it takes a while to go. Wait a minute, that's not me. And it takes friends and family a while. Julie, Julie didn't mean to have three boyfriends at once and to, you know, lie down in the middle of the road while she was drunk and to leave her job and go to China. They, they now can look back and go, oh, she didn't really mean that. Now, if I were continuing that behavior, then that's different. They have the right to be upset with me. But since I'm working so hard and I still will have a manic episode that's embarrassing or upsetting, it, I get over it more quick, quickly and they're able to help me with the downswing that comes after because they understand. Mm-hmm. So I know who I am now inside, separate from bipolar. It took many years. And you continue to stress over and over and over again the importance of family and friends who are there walking this path with you. And it takes work, though. 
1995 when I was finally diagnosed, I basically had my mother, my partner Ivan, and a few friends. I direct everything, especially due to paranoia. I couldn't work. I had very few friends. I was miserable. I'd gained a lot of weight. Um, it took many years. I, it's like building a foundation. I built this life I have now literally from nothing. I built it by hand, brick by brick, by using my treatment plan because otherwise I was not a pleasant person. I was a very unpleasant person. You're very pleasant right now. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, w I want to ask you something else. Uh, going into your book, Get It Done When You're Depressed, which is uh, dog-eared already. <laughs> my, I love that my, book. My I, copy. I use that book myself. Oh, it's fantastic. Um, I'm, I'm looking at Chapter 7, Structure Your Day Like a Child's. Uh, we had a lot of trouble with Rebecca, who did not want to be treated like a child. And she resisted any attempt to to move in, uh, not literally, but and, and actually sometimes literally, and to treat her in a, in a childlike way. And yet here is Chapter 7, Structure Your Day Like a Child's. I have read it. Would you please elaborate on what you mean by structure your day like a child's, especially when dealing with someone like Rebecca who refuses to be treated like a child? Well, you know, that's a good question simply because that's what you saw in this or whatever is not the same thing as if she read that. Because you're talking about helping her structure her day. And when people are depressed or bipolar, they're like, leave me the heck alone. Don't treat me like that. I can do my schedule on my own. This book would be if Rebecca wanted to help herself, which I know she did. I open that and I read Structure Your Day Like a Child, and it reminds me of what my life was like in simpler times. I knew where I had to be. I had to be at school. I had my studying. I had etc. So it was about me structuring my own life. If someone tried to come in and do that for me, especially before now, I would have been upset with them. But what it's saying is that children, because they're moody, because they don't have enough experience, need to have something in place every day to keep them from, you know, getting nothing done or just hanging out with friends or, or maybe doing something that, you know, is not productive. I don't, it's a child, so it's different. So basically what I'm saying is structure your day like a student. Mm -hmm. So that probably is, is another way of looking at it. Because when we're children, we're students. We have family and friends to help us. My family helps me structure my day because they know when I get sick, my mom is right on the phone. I'll go, I'm sick, mom. She comes over. She'll clean my house for me. She'll take me out to lunch. And she won't. She sort of won't leave me alone. And at, at the time, I'm like, oh, God. But let me tell you, it gets me out of the depression. So that's what that means. Structure your day like a child who knows what every hour brings. Mm -hmm. And that keeps me going. Well, you just said something else that uh, is ringing bells in my head. You call your mother and you say, I'm sick. Rebecca was taught by her caretakers not to call her mother and her father or her family or her friends. Rebecca was taught, you can do this. Do this on your own. You oh, have to be strong. Do this by yourself. So we didn't always know what was going on with her unless 
yes. Um, I heard it in her voice. I saw it on her face. I was in contact with her multiple times a day and during the night. We, we had our own program set up, but she was so good at hiding. What do you have to say to those like Rebecca who hide it? It's remember, hiding implies choice. And I always say this, depression, suicidal depression, and mania, you know, sometimes I'm manic and I'll be driving down the street and even me, with all of my system, I'll go, Julie, you said you'd call your mom when you get manic. You said you'd be honest. And there's a voice in my brain that says, you don't have to tell her. Let's just enjoy this, Julie. This, Don't worry about it. No one cares. Let's just go out. That beer looks really good. You can get on Craigslist and go find a date for tonight. So it's not so much that you're trying to hide it. It's this illness talks to you. And it goes, you don't have to tell anybody about that. If you do, they're just not going to like you anymore. And, you know, you don't want to be a burden. You're a burden to your family. Look how sad your mom is. You can't call your mom. And it talks to you. And you have to learn to, when it does that, you go, I'm not listening to you. I'm not listening to what you say. And then you pick up the phone and call your mom. And in the last couple years since, you know, because my mood swings are so severe and they're so frequent, I do manage to pick up that phone, but it took me a long time. Now, I don't know why Rebecca would have gotten advice like that. Um, it comes with with whom they're, you know, with whomever is around that person because my plan came from me. In other words, I sat down and I went, here's who I need to help me when I get sick because I'm not going to want help when I get sick. Mm-hmm. And that's a different system than me being too needy or hurting other people. I worry about my mom all the time, but she has finally convinced me that this is the role she plays. She's my she's my helper. But it took me years, and so you can't beat yourself up about it. It's not that she was hiding it. It's that she was getting misinformation from others, and she was trying to protect you. She often told me that if I yeah, if I may be personal, she loved you. She loved you and was trying to protect you and your husband because of the dynamics that were already set up. I completely changed the dynamics in my family to one of silence, to complete and utter open honesty about my illness. It took my brother and my mother a couple years to even learn how to do this. Can you talk about that, Julie? It's so crucial. Well, I have a program called the Health Cards, and you have you read all my books, but I have a treatment plan called the Health Cards, and what it is is I taught myself to recognize every single thing I think, say, and do when I'm sick. And then I broke it into the five billion, it seems, mood swings that I go through, the main ones being anxiety, psychosis, mania, and depression. And I wrote down every single thing that I think, say, and do. And then I realized when I did this, my family and friends have no idea how to help me when I say I'm never going to have a boyfriend or I'm never going to be happy again. Because their response is, oh, Julie, come on, you have so much going on, blah, 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 which doesn't help. So within the system, I wrote down exactly what they should say when I get sick, and they started doing it. And they just looked at the system, looked what I'd written, thought about what worked, and then they started doing it. And it took my mom two years to understand how to help me, and it took my brother longer. Um, it, it took my friends a long time because I would tell them how to help me when I'm psychotic. Um, and even now I have some friends who are just like, oh, Julie, you're just happy when I'm mm-hmm. manic. Mm-hmm. But no, that's what it is. It's diligent telling family members how to help you. And I'm not sure that Rebecca under was given the information that she could do that instead of listening to other people who were telling her how to help herself. <laughs>
Right. I, I'm now seeing that no, she was not. Nor were we. Well, and you know what? Hindsight's twenty twenty. because if I were not able to teach my family and friends, they would never understand because understanding this illness is not innate. It goes against everything we're taught as children about behavior, about therapy, about finding your inner child, etc. That's why I say treat bipolar first. You can't do any kind of therapy or inner searching with this illness until the illness is out of the way because it lies to us. So what Rebecca's family is now doing is trying to teach, is as you have been in your family, is teaching, and we're doing it through the help of the DBSA and partnering with DBSA. And I really can't begin to tell you, Julie, how honored we are that you are going to be speaking at the home at home with wellness, families in recovery, September twelfth through the power of peers, the DBSA National Conference. I, I, as I said earlier when we began our conversation that we could go on, I feel that I could go on with you for six months, a year, the rest of my life, and I hope that that will happen, that you and I will continue our discussion, and that between us, the DBSA, your family, everything that you are doing, the world will change, Julie, it has to change. This attitude, this feeling of shame and humiliation toward mental illness has to change. It has to change, yeah. Is it astonishing? I always say Hippocrates talked about mood disorder 2,000 years ago, and it's only that it's been on the cover of magazines and that we are being open about it, and yet this is an illness very structured. We know exactly what's going to happen to us. We know what the mood swings look like. We all act the same. You know, I could have been in a room with Rebecca, and we could have talked for hours because we have the same symptoms, and yet we're treated individually like something is wrong with us, and there's not anything wrong with us, we have an illness that we need to treat. We need to take our meds and have a treatment plan, but it's an illness. I can't wait to give you a great big hug. <laughs> Thank you, Gail. I can't wait to meet you either. It's soon. It's like it's soon. I know. September 12th in Virginia. Thank you, Julie, for this and for everything that you have done and will continue to do. Your voice is needed. Very much needed. Thank you, and you, what you're doing is very important too, because we have to have organizations, you know, like with Rebecca's Dream and and people like you to get me out there, because it's hard for me to move forward with this stuff because of the bipolar. But if someone supports us and gives us, you know, a, a gentle way of easing into this, it really helps. So I appreciate it. We are with you a million percent. Thank you very much. Take good care of yourself. Okay. Thank you, Gail. Thank you, Julie. Bye bye. This concludes our DBSA Real Recovery Podcast. Julie Fast will be presenting a workshop about families and recovery on Friday, September 12th at the DBSA National Conference in Norfolk, Virginia. The workshop will delve deeper into the topics we've discussed today. Make plans to join us in Norfolk by registering today online at www.dbsalliance.org. been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.